0: Hello church, welcome to our Sunday night Bible study. Uh, Tonight I thought it would be fun to do something a little bit different. Uh, I know that you might be tired of seeing and hearing from me every week, so I brought in another beautiful pastor that we have, Pastor Brandon, uh, who many of you may not have seen for a while, so I thought it would be good for us to hear from him as well. And I have been preparing for a seminary class that I'll be teaching on the doctrine of the law uh, in a couple of weeks. And I've been teaching through a Sunday school class on the law and the gospel. And Brandon and I have both uh, recently did a, a training where we talked through some law gospel issues. And uh, I thought it would be fruitful for us to have a, kind of a, a general flyover of some of these issues. These are very important, as you will see as we go through these things. These are fundamental to how we view the Bible. In fact, we have the Old and New Testaments, which is Latin testamentum, which means covenant. And so we're thinking in terms of covenants, even when we pick up our Bible, and we tell you to turn to the Old and the New Testament. These are important for uh, for our life as a church as well. We believe that the confession of faith that our church uses is, um, is the accurate uh, summary of what the Bible teaches. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, we believe is the distillation of the theology found within scripture, but that Theology is not merely proof texting, and by that I mean you can't just say, okay, for this doctrine, you need to just go to this chapter and this verse, and there is what it says exactly. No, the confession is a cohesive, interdependent document that arose when Baptists used what they believed the biblical lens, the biblical interpretive framework, and they applied it to Scripture. What bubbled up from that was our confession of faith it's not merely just them picking and choosing particular doctrines from the Bible it's them putting the whole Bible together through what they believe to be the biblical lens of Scripture the biblical interpretive framework and a major component of that biblical framework is an understanding of the law of God and the gospel of God and so that's what I'd like for us to begin to talk through and I think Pastor Brandon is going to start by introducing us to this law gospel framework in general.
1: Yeah, so the law gospel framework for the Reformers and the Lutherans uh, was really seen through this lens of covenant. And so when you look at um, the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 27, Paul reminds and exhorts um, the Ephesian elders, and he says that I never shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so a question comes about from that: What is the whole council of God? And that's kind of what, generally what we get this whole idea of the law and gospel dynamic. The law is the great covenant with Adam, the works covenant. We call it a covenant of, covenant of works or the Adamic covenant. Um,
0: which and, was which was precisely the, the Adamic covenant was, uh, don't eat from the fruit of the tree. Yep. Um, and, and the day that you do it, you will surely die. So he should manifest his love to God by obedience to that particular positive command. That's right. Right. Okay. And so
1: the gospel covenant is the covenant of grace and free grace in Christ. And so all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ live. And we see that in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, where it says those in Adam die and those in Christ live. That's a reference to the law gospel dynamic, the two great covenants, Adam and Christ. And we see that specifically in more detail in Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 19. Let's work through those. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And so a question comes about how in the world did death spread through one man and sin into the world through one man? And all sin is because God viewed and has always viewed His people through covenant. He viewed His people through the lens of the covenant of works with Adam. Adam was what's called a federal head. He represent, which means he represented the uh, the whole of human race. And so, if Adam had succeeded in keeping the positive law or the law given to him in the garden to not eat of the fruit of the tree, then all would have lived. But Adam failed, and so all died. And that's how all sinned, because Adam represented everyone in the covenant of works. For sin indeed was in the world, verse 13, before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. That's really a reference to what what theologians call typology. And so types of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ, meaning he came as a representation, as a representation of the human race. But Christ comes as something better. So
0: so when you say type, he's not one of different categories of Christ. No, it means type from a Greek word meaning shadow. Mm -hmm. So there's a precursor that is lesser that across the canon is greater and greater, revealed into a greater and greater degree, ultimately fulfilled by Christ. Absolutely. So he's a precursor. Okay. Absolutely.
1: And it reveals his grace to come. Verse 15, it says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, meaning the law is not like the gospel. They work in harmony, but they are distinct. And that's very important when we get to practical application. For if many die through one man's transgression, much more have the grace of god and the free gift by the grace of that one man jesus christ abounded for many and so here's the problem no one objects to christ being a representative head for us no one would say i want some of jesus um, and some of me we want all of christ to represent all of us so that we can freely enter into heaven and enjoy the fruits of the labor of our lord the objection really comes when people start thinking about adam Well, it's not fair that Adam represented the whole of human race. And yet God is the creator and that's how he made it. And so we submit to God by faith and we trust that he is good. Verse 16, I'm sorry. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. So that's a reference to the guilt and the pollution that comes from the covenant of works. Guilt and pollution comes into this world. So we're guilty because Adam sinned. We're also guilty because of our own sins. But in terms of covenant parlance, we're guilty because Adam sinned. And that also brought in pollution, which is what we get the doctrine total depravity from.
0: Total pollution meaning not that we are as absolutely terrible as we could be, but total in the sense that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin our our mind our desires our affections our 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 heart our soul our mind our strength every aspect of our being is um the totality of our existence is tainted by sin absolutely okay
1: and it says for the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you see the distinction there, the, the typology working through covenant. But you see, in Adam all die, and it's total. It's complete. There's nothing you can pull yourself up. You can never pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And yet, those who are in Christ by faith, the free gift, is the opposite. You come and you receive life from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is all men who are in Christ by faith. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so that really is a detailed description of the law and gospel dynamic. All in Christ live and all in Adam die. And so that's what we mean by the law and gospel distinction theologically and the dynamic of the two.
0: Great. So we've seen, we've seen kind of these two uh, different uh, federal arrangements or covenantal arrangements. That's what federal means. It comes from a Latin word for covenant. Uh, and so we have, you're either, you're born in Adam and then one day Um, through the Spirit's work, and by repenting of your sins and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you can be brought under him as your federal head. But there's no other alternative. There's no third federal head. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ, which shows us again this dynamic, this contrast between law and gospel. So Brandon's done a good job introducing the two categories. I wanna get a little deeper into what the Bible teaches about uh, the law of God. And it's important for us to understand when we hear law, we can be tempted to think of something that is mean and constrictive and oppressive and terrible, something we don't, don't like at all, uh, which is really not how Scripture uh, sees the law in its totality. Uh, we, we, we hear the psalmist even saying, oh, how I love your law. Mm-hmm. That, that does not sound like somebody that's constricted, constrained, uh, in a negative, terrible way. So in Matthew 22, verses 34 uh, through 40, we hear Jesus asked a question. The Sadducees come and say, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And so we see there, and in Romans 13, uh, 8 through 10, and we see in Galatians uh, 5, 14, you know, the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is, uh, love is expressed, can be expressed, we could say, in terms of law. If I want to love somebody, I can think through the Ten Commandments and think through this is what it would look like for me to love them biblically. It's not to steal from them, not to murder them or do anything that would harm or impede their life, not to uh, covet what they have been given, right? So we can think through this way And, and conversely we can say that the law fills out love. Right? We live in a world that's very subjective right now. You, you, you can have your truth, I'll have my truth, but that's, that's not the world of the Bible. That's not reality uh, either. Uh, and so when we, when we think, what does it look like to love, we can think in categories of law. But when we think of law, every aspect of our being should be motivated by love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we'll get into more of this in a minute, but I wanted to make that connection, that love fulfills the law, and law is what fills out or pictures for us what love ought to look like. And so definitions are important for us, and I want us to speak with with clarity and precision. I want us to realize that when we're reading Scripture and we see the word law, that word can be used in different ways. Uh, Torah in the Old Testament, namas in the New, this law can be used to reference the whole word of God, all of God's revelation to men. Um, we can see that in you know Psalm 1 or Psalm 19. Um, law can be used to reference the Old Testament. Um, Jesus talks about that in John 10, verse 34, where he's quoting Psalm 82. Um, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Law can be used to mean... Uh, not merely the whole Word of God, not merely the Old Testament, but even tighter, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, we can see references, for example, in Luke 24, verse 44, or Romans 3:21, where we see uh, um, a statement made referring to the law and the prophets where they're breaking down the old testament scriptures into two categories the the pentateuch the law the first five books and then the prophets the writings after that Uh, law can number four also be used to reference the whole era of moses the uh, mosaic covenant the law with the people of god given in exodus 20 uh, to the ending of the uh, till, till they're sent into exile and so the the law uh, can be referenced this way, for example, in Hebrews 7:12, where we read that when the priesthood is changed, there must be a law change as well. Or John in his uh, prologue verse uh, chapter 1 verse 17, he says the law was given through Moses but grace through Jesus Christ. And so we have the law as the whole word of God, the law as the Old Testament, The law is the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. The law is the era of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. Or the law, number five, the law is meant as the covenant of works, as distinction from the covenant of grace. And this is a lot of what Brandon was talking about. You're either in Adam's covenant of works, or you're in Christ's covenant of grace. And we see this, for example, in Romans 6, 14. When Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So we're not going to go deep into that verse right now, but you just see there are two categories. You're either under the law or you're under grace. You're either under Adam and the condemnation of his covenant, or you're under grace uh, through the justification of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other passages we can look for for this uh, law being reference to uh, covenant of works. Uh, Hosea chapter 6 references the covenant that Israel broke. Uh, Isaiah 24 uh, and, and 1 Corinthians 15, that Brandon has already mentioned for us. I think it's also helpful for us to think through definitions. So there are different aspects to the law of God. And I think it's good for us to, to, to kind of lay some of these categories out So that as we're talking through this, perhaps if Brandon and I can do some later videos, uh, we can have some common language. This is theological language, but I want you to hang with me because it's very important to think precisely in some of these areas. So one category of law that you I'm sure have heard of is God's moral law. This is his unchanging, fixed bedrock standard of morality that is a reflection of his perfect uprightness and holiness it doesn't change because God never changed God doesn't God doesn't get more holy and neither does his law get more righteous there is a fixed standard of what is right and wrong it's not arbitrary it doesn't change with the covenants this is unchanging and that moral law is stamped on mankind as part of his being made in the image of God and when we're referring to it as being part of man's human nature we call it natural law there's that's a whole field of study in 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 the law field the studies of natural law Um, but what we mean and you can see that in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 um Paul says, Romans 2, 14 and 15, when the Gentiles who don't have the law, that is, the Gentiles didn't have the Torah, they did not have Moses, uh, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is important. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The work of the law is written on their hearts. These are Gentiles who never had god's revelation given to them so we can go to the jungles in Papua new guinea and if i walk up and punch somebody in the face they're going to know that's wrong they're going to know that if i steal their chickens that's wrong and the reason is is because god's universal standard of morality his moral law the work of that law is stamped upon all human beings because they're made in the image of God and they had God's natural law impressed upon them. And this is important for us. We, we might get into this later. It's important for evangelism. It's important for our parenting. It's important for all sorts of other things. But it's important for us to have these categories. A third category, so we've got God's moral law, his unchanging bedrock standard of morality doesn't ever change. That law is then impressed upon human beings at their creation, being made in His image. That's called natural law. Another category of laws for us is to know that there are positive laws. These, unlike the moral law and its substance, the natural law, positive laws are laws that God adds out of His good pleasure, out of His own free will, and He ties them to specific covenants. So for example, let me ask you this question. Was Abraham sinning by not taking the Lord's Supper? The way that you answer that reveals how you think about positive laws. The answer is no, he was not sinning because the Lord's Supper is a positive law added to the new covenant era, our era, as something we are called to do Out of an expression of love and obedience to God's moral law, we are called in this covenant to express our obedience to that law in obeying this positive law of Lord's Supper and Baptism, among others. Uh, Lord's Day worship, Sunday worship is another one. Positive laws. These laws are changing. They can be the, the dietary food laws in the old covenant that we're no longer bound by the uh, judicial laws in the Old Covenant about, you know, all sorts of things. You pick up sticks on the Sabbath, you should go take them out and be stoned. We don't live under that anymore. Praise God, right? Those are positive laws that are done away with with the Old Covenant, and that helps us distinguish. And we see this categorical distinction between the moral law, which is fixed, unchanging, forever the same, and the positive laws, which are built off of the moral law, but are distinct, we see that even in Exodus 20 at the giving of the law. We have the 10 commandments, the 10 words of God, also called the Decalogue. Those 10 commandments were written by the finger of God on a mountain that was full of lightning and thunder. If anybody touched the mountain, they were gonna die. They were given all sorts of um, special treatment. They were written on tablets of stone, unlike the rest of them. They were put in the Ark of the Covenant, unlike the rest of the laws, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws. They were treated in very different ways. That's because the fixed, unchanging moral law of God is um, is perpetual. It does not change forever. The moral law will be exactly the same because God is not going to change and get any more holy. His reflection is not going to change. And so just like the Jews were under the moral law of God, we too are under the moral law of God. But we are no longer under the ceremonial and the judicial laws of God. We can eat bacon and shellfish. We can wear different cuts of clothing sewn together. Uh, we have liberty not being under those ceremonial laws. We don't have to go through the washings and the and the slaughtering of, of animals and shedding of blood and all those things. Um, we are free in Christ. Um, but we also have positive laws that we're to obey, you know, Sunday worship and um the new, new Covenant ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism and things like that. So those are helpful categories for us, the moral law, the natural law, and the positive law. So Brandon and I have been talking for about 22 minutes now. I think we should try and apply this in a couple of areas. This isn't merely abstract theology that's philosophical and irrelevant. This isn't some speculative thing that doesn't touch us on the ground every day it matters for our parenting it matters for how we love our spouses it matters for how we love our neighbor it matters for how we work and for how we rest and how we worship and so let's let's talk brandon i think one really important area that the law and the gospel perhaps most clearly is seen is how we understand what is right and wrong Mm -hmm. what is sin And what is not sin? What am I I free to do? What what does holiness look like? So talk to us about that for a few minutes.
1: Yeah, when we talk about the theology of sin and holiness and how the law and gospel affects that, I think we need to first make distinctions within the law and its uses. And so theologians have taught what's called the three uses of the law. And so let's look at those. One of the first uses uh, of the law, meaning the moral law, the 10 commandments, as John Inglis has just taught us, is to reveal sin. And this is effective for both the believer and the unbeliever. Let's look at Romans 7, verse 7. It's Paul talking. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not. I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. And we know t- Paul is speaking here of the moral law because he, he references the 10th uh, commandment in the decalogue of the 10 words and so the law reveals sin the law shows us what sin is we don't have to guess about sin we know what it is because god's as John has just taught us fixed immutable standard of righteousness morality and holiness another use of the law the second use of the law is what's called is 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 to restrain sin and so this is where the law actually holds back us from being as evil as we really could be Kind of like what we talked about earlier when John Ings made the distinction of we're, we're not as bad as we could be. Well, the law assists with that. Let's look at 1 Timothy um, 1, verses 8 through 10. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just." But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, he's referencing the Ten Commandments, lying, stealing, adultery, murder. Covetousness, and so the law, the moral law of the Decalogue, helps to restrain the sin in believers, and this is also for unbelievers. And what I mean by this is not that their hearts are changed and it restrains their sin, but when we put a rule up that you can't come into my home and steal from me, that's the law restraining sin from unbelievers. It's not the law can't change their hearts; it's not changing them, but it is restraining them from being as bad as they really want, as bad as unbelievers. And even believers really want to be. So the law restrains sin.
0: An an example of that I've seen somebody might counter, you know, push back and say, well, why do I see every single person on I 85 speeding every single day? You say there's a law, there's a sign that says don't go faster than 70, and everybody's doing it. And the response to that is, well, how many of them were going 130? (laughs) None of them. That's right. right. It doesn't restrain it absolutely. That's right. But it does restrain. That's right. And so that's. That's how we can respond to that. And the third
1: use of the law is unique. It's exclusive only to believers. It's a rule of life. And so we use the Ten Commandments not as a means of life, to get life or to earn life or to earn favor with God or men, but we use it as a guide, a rule to obey God's commandments fully. Let's look at Galatians 6.2 for this. Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so what did Christ do? Jesus came and he kept the Ten Commandments in our place. He never lied. He never stole. He never cheated. He never committed adultery. He was always faithful. He never coveted. He never murdered or hated his brother without cause. He never broke the Sabbath. He fulfilled it. He kept the Sabbath. He never dishonored his God. He kept the first table and the second table of the law. He never had another God before his father. He never failed to worship his father fully in our place. And so Jesus kept both tables of the Ten Commandments. And 1 John 5, verses 1 through 3, I believe, uh, teach us that we are to walk as Christ walked. And so Christ walked by keeping the moral law. But he did it to keep it in our place as a means of life. And so now that we have life, we have a new relationship with the law. We no longer are in the covenant with Adam if we are in Christ by faith. And so the law no longer becomes a means of life, but a rule because life has already been accomplished through the gospel, through the free gift of grace. But now we need to learn how to live to avoid what is called antinomianism, which simply means lawlessness. And so we don't want to live as those who don't have a rule to obey because we've been regenerated. We have the gifts and the fruits and the blessings of the covenant of grace. And so we have a rule to obey. And that's the Ten Commandments. And so we don't guess about sin. We use the law rightly. And we also use what's called the spirituality of the law. And so the law covenant requires obedience both internal. I'm sorry, both in our internal disposition, which are our thoughts and our motives, and our external appearances, our words and our actions. And so we don't guess on sin when we're talking about holiness and the theology of sin. We don't guess on sin because God has given us tools for extracting the sinfulness of sin. Let's look at Hebrews 4, verse 12, thinking about this category of The Spirituality of the Law. Let's
0: see what it says. As the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you
1: see that? Do you see how the law cuts deeper than us guessing about what sin may be or what the sin on our hearts may be? But the law itself cuts deeper than any guess that we can... Contrive or come up with. The law itself crushes us. And why is that? It's because the law as a covenant comes to us believing that we have the ability to keep it. So the law is good, the Bible says. The problem is we are not before Christ. And so the law comes believing you must keep this for life. And when we fail, it crushes us. And we fail and we, we fall deeper and deeper into sin. But the gospel comes with. First, with pure promise, and it comes promising help. The gospel com- comes believing that we are weak and frail and unable to keep God's perfect righteousness, perfect righteous standard for life. And so, it comes promising life. And then it makes us new through what we call regeneration, and it gives us a rule to obey through the rule of the, lo- the rule of uh, life for- and keeping the law. And then it allows us to keep the law. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And that's through the work of the Holy Spirit within these two great covenants.
0: That's really helpful. So when I think about what you're saying with the spirituality of the law, the law is not merely, and this is exactly what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, the law is not merely don't commit adultery. Mm. The law is if you've ever had a fleeting passing moment of lustful, of a lustful thought, mm. you are condemned by the law. And as James says, if we break one, we break all of them. Yep. And so it ramps up. It really it doesn't change the standard of the law. Mm. It opens our eyes to what was there all along. In fact, the fact that the tenth commandment is "You shall not covet," which is an internal action mm. that's not it's not a physical thing that we do. We do that in our hearts. That teaches us that the whole of the ten commandments, the whole time, has been spiritual in its nature. Mm. Jesus teaches us that it's not merely enough don't to get to fly off the handle and get mad at somebody. If you've had Uh, Anger in your heart towards somebody you are condemned by God's law so the spirituality of the law Shows us the depth of our sinfulness in every way, but it also Gloriously shows us how much our great law keeper how virtuous he was Christ fulfilled He had full human humanity just like we do he had the um, Human capacities that, that we do he had the abilities that we do and so for him to fulfill the law completely in our place means that it wasn't that he merely didn't commit adultery, it was that he never once had a lustful thought. In fact, he did everything in his power to positively fulfill the law, working for the good of the marriages around him, right? He, it wasn't just that he didn't physically murder somebody, he was working for the life of everyone around him, um, even up to and including his, his uh, sinful bride. And so this, these, these issues are very important to us. They, uh, the law, knowing it precisely, is important. It's related to the work of Christ in another way. So if Christ fulfilled the law and his active obedience to that law is counted towards me, well, the question that I ask people sometimes is, what law did Jesus fulfill in our place? Because if you say Well, the law of Moses... And you, by that, you don't mean another law. But I thought, I'm not in Moses. Mm-hmm. I'm in Adam. No, the answer is he fulfilled the moral law, and because he was a Jew, he ex- fulfilled the expressions of that moral law through the Mosaic Covenant as well. And so because it was the moral law, the bedrock that he fulfilled, he fulfilled where Adam failed, he fulfilled where Israel failed in Moses, he has fulfilled... Uh, where uh, all the previous covenants were failed, he f- succeeded in our place, and that righteousness is imputed to us. Um, that's significant for us in our doctrine of the atonement. One more way for us to apply this—it's uh, related to the um, conversation about sin and holiness and, and unrighteousness and righteousness—is uh, the law of gospel is relation to our freedom. So,
1: yeah, John. 8:36 says whom the son set free is free indeed. But what does that mean? What did the son, what did Christ set us free from? And I think it's important to realize first what the law covenant sets us free from. And the answer is absolutely nothing. In fact, it only increases judgment. But the gospel itself frees us distinctly, theologically speaking, from multiple things. One, it frees us from the devil. We see this in Hebrews 2:14. The devil has no power over us. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. But he has no power over over us like he commanded power over Adam and Eve in the garden. Because Christ is the greater Adam. He's, and he's overcome the evil one, the Bible teaches us. A second thing that um, the gospel frees us from is from sin. That does not mean that we don't sin in this world. We do have a nature. We no longer have a nature that sins. I'm sorry, we no longer have a sin nature, but we do have a nature that still sins. And so when we think about Romans 8.1, when it talks about the condemnation of Christ, that's what we mean. Sin cannot condemn us if we are in Christ, because he has set us free from the pollution and the guilt of sin. Thirdly, the freedom from the law, we have freedom from the law in the gospel, meaning the law as a means of life. We went over that in Romans 5. You can also see Paul talking about this in Romans 7, 9 through 12. We also, fourth, have freedom from men. And what this means are the consciences of men. And this is important practically. John Ingalls has asked this question already, but what is sin? How can we know what sin is? It's because of the law. Sin is not how we feel. That's a difficult thing. We should always be compassionate and take into consideration the thoughts and feelings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we agree or disagree with them. Jesus always met us, he always meets us where we are, and he considers those things. But the determination of what sin is is not how I feel today or tomorrow or yesterday. It's what God says in his law. And let me tell you why that's important that we're free from the consciences of men, because if we bind ourselves, allow our consciences to be bound by the suggestions or the feelings of men, then what we make are idols. We actually break the first table of the Ten Commandments because we have another God before God, because we're considering a law above and greater to his immutable standard. It also means that we're breaking the Sabbath because we're worshiping the thoughts of others by not submitting to God's law, but we're submitting to the rule of the life of how my brother or sister feels. Again, we should consider how our brothers and sisters in Christ feel, but we should always go to the law to determine what sin is and what it's not. And so we're free from the consciences of men. You see that in 1 Corinthians 7.23. Fifth thing that we're free from is freedom from death. That's spiritual death. Right. So we're free from spiritual death. We no longer die spiritually. Christ has made us alive through regeneration. We're also free from natural death. And I don't mean that we're not going to die. It means that death will not keep us down. And we're free from eternal death. If we're going to have eternal life in heaven and we'll be living perpetually, well, those in hell will be eternally dying. And so we're free from spiritual death, natural death and eternal death. And the last thing that the Bible teaches that we're free from is that we're free from the grave. And these things are distinct, distinct. And so how, how do we know that we're free from the grave? Because Christ is risen. Christ's own resurrection ensures our own. And we learn that through, we don't have time for this today, but union with Christ, we, which is the principle in the Reformation that teaches we get all that Christ gets and
0: accomplished for us.
1: And the resurrection is one of those things.
0: Wonderful news. And I think it would be fitting for us to read 1 Corinthians 15. Um, it says death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The death the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, brother.